0: everyone, welcome to or welcome back to the mTOR You Know podcast. My name is Lauren Schumacher and we are going to be talking about imposter syndrome today. We're fortunate to be joined by three wonderful panelists that are going to take us through a journey. We're going to talk about what imposter syndrome looks like and how it can impact us as trainees or pharmacists. And then we're going to talk about how to overcome imposter syndrome and what's worked for us or others. Our first panelist is Megan Golly. Megan completed her pharmacy school at the University of Toledo, then went on to complete her PGY1 acute care residency at Loyola University Medical Center in Maywood, Illinois. She is currently completing her solid organ transplant PGY2 at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota.
1: Next, we have Dr. Eric Henrikson, uh, who is an adult cardiothoracic transplant and alba pharmacist at Stanford Medicine. He completed his PharmD at University of Cincinnati. He then went to University of Cincinnati Medical Center to complete his PGY1 pharmacy practice residency and his PGY2 in solid organ transplant at the University of California, San Francisco Health. He worked briefly as a pediatric transplant pharmacist at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital before transitioning to his current role at Stanford Medicine. In addition to his clinical roles, Eric also serves as the director of Stanford's Heart Transplant Research Database, and is the co-chair of the Pharmacy Resident Research Seminar. Eric has served as the co-trainee member of the IMTR Executive Board during his PGY2 year, and is currently serving as the chair of the IMTR Workforce Committee.
0: And our last panelist is Dr. Lindsay Bowman. Lindsey Bowman is an abdominal transplant pharmacotherapy specialist, co-residency program director of the PGY-2 Solid Organ Transplant Residency Program, and clinical coordinator for the transplant pharmacist at Tampa General Hospital. Dr. Bowman has been practicing in the field of solid organ transplant for 15 years following pharmacy school at St. Louis College of Pharmacy and residency training at the Medical University of South Carolina. She is board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist and board-certified transplant pharmacist, as well as a fellow of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy and the American Society of Transplantation. Lindsay is an active member of ACCP and the Immunology and Transplant PRN and recently had the honor of chairing the IMTR PRN. Lindsay is also actively involved within the AST, a former member at large of the AST transplant pharmacy community practice, prior faculty for AST's fellow symposium, immediate past chair for AST's community education committee, and a current planning committee member for the cutting edge of transplantation. Dr. Bowman contributes to medical literature through active publication and peer-reviewed journals and engages in outcomes research within the Transplant Institute at Tampa General. All right, everyone. So let's start the talk on imposter syndrome. Again, my name is Lauren Schumacher, and I am joined today by my co-host, Eileen Chi. So let's get started with introducing our three panelists. And Megan, why don't you kick us off?
2: Hi,
3: my name is Megan Gali. I graduated from the University of Toledo College of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences in 2021. And then I did my PGY-1 at Loyola University Medical Center. And now I am doing my uh, solid organ transplant PGY-2 here at Mayo Clinic in very snowy Minnesota.
0: Glad to have you, Megan. And how about Eric next?
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Eric Hendrickson. I'm one of the cardiothoracic transplant pharmacists at Stanford Medicine Um, I did my PGY-1 at the University of Cincinnati and my PGY-2 at UCSF, and I've been practicing for about five years now.
0: Thanks, Eric. And last but not least, Lindsay.
4: Hi, everybody. My name is Lindsay Bowman. I'm calling in this evening from sunny Tampa, Florida. I am one of the abdominal transplant pharmacists here, and I also serve as the clinical coordinator for the group. Thank you all for inviting me to be on this uh, panel.
0: So we're excited to have our panelists with us today to have a very honest and insightful discussion on imposter syndrome and what imposter syndrome looks like as a pharmacist or a training pharmacist. Um, But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to take a step back and talk about what imposter syndrome is. I would imagine that most of us have experienced it or can imagine or empathize with it, but may not be familiar with this terminology. So if you look up imposter syndrome, it's defined as the persistent inability to believe that one's success is deserved or has been legitimately achieved as a result of one's own efforts or skills. What it boils down to is... When you have a hard time believing that you're worthy of your position, that the, the position that you're in, you're talking the success up to good luck and not feeling deserving of your job or your accomplishments. Sometimes being fearful of being found out to be an imposter or fraud, um, to not have what it takes to succeed in your current position. Oftentimes, individuals with imposter syndrome are considered to be perfectionists. And knowing the type of personalities that are drawn to pharmacy, I'd be willing to bet that most of us are set up to have imposter syndrome at some point. Interestingly, imposter syndrome was coined back in the 70s. Um, It was first described by psychologists Suzanne Imes and Pauline Rose Clamps Uh, in 1978. They thought that women were uniquely affected, um, but now we know that women and men experience this. So thank you so much, Eric, for being here to confirm that. It's estimated that 70% of people will experience imposter syndrome in their lifetime.
1: And now, since we have this wonderful panel uh, with us, and what we would really like to get to understand, it's sort of what it was like for you, and how did imposter syndrome really impact you? And do you have any takeaways from these experiences? And especially um, from the residents perspective, Megan, now that you're going through residency, how do you feel this imposter syndrome may have manifested, affected you and impacted you in your current or maybe even perhaps going into the future and any points that you feel you've really learned from these experiences?
3: Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. I think as the the person in the group that is still training, I think I probably have a unique perspective on this. Um, my first kind of dabble with imposter syndrome actually happened in the ED. So I was training in the ED and I found out, I got the email that I had passed my MPJE and I got licensed. And then almost immediately after one of the nurses came up to me and asked me a question, like, and had full trust in me. And I was like, I, I've been a pharmacist, a licensed pharmacist for all of eight minutes. Like, I am not the person you want to ask this. Um, so I think very early on in PGY one it's, it's very easy to feel like you don't belong there, especially after the interview circuit and match day and the whole process, and you finally get there. And you're hit with clinical questions that you've never even dreamt of. It's kind of very easy to fall into that pattern of feeling like you don't belong there. I think the biggest takeaway is from PGY1 and dealing with imposter syndrome is just trust the people who are around you. The people who have chosen to put you in this position are very, very smart people. And if they didn't think you could do it, then you wouldn't be here.
0: Megan, the way you shared that brought back the the sheer terror of being asked clinical questions that quite frankly, school did not prepare you for and never came up in the selected appies that you had. And I think that's a feeling a lot of us can relate to. I think that imposter syndrome very much lives beyond the training period. So Eric and Lindsay as well, I'd like to hear if you experienced imposter syndrome when you started a new job, maybe as fresh out of PGY2, or maybe if the transitioning jobs and what that
4: was like. For you. Thanks, Lauren. You know, I probably didn't recognize that it was imposter syndrome in the beginning. And I really don't know that I can pinpoint a specific day that it occurred, but it was early on in my career. I did a PGY2 in critical care at MUSC. So at the time they didn't even have a solid organ transplant residency, but here I was taking a solid organ transplant position at Barnes Jewish hospital in St. Louis. And it was this, you know, renowned institution with these renowned clinicians, um, that I was working with both pharmacy clinicians, as well as transplant nephrologists and transplant surgeons. And here I was feeling that I wasn't prepared or worthy of this position. I had trained in critical care. And even though I had received a lot of additional training, when I decided I was going to take this position at Barnes, I still felt like I wasn't worthy to be the kidney and liver transplant pharmacist at Barnes Jewish hospital working with Dan Brennan and giving him recommendations of what he should be doing with medications. And I think that I definitely continued to experience that throughout probably several years of my career, kind of in a cyclic manner. And I don't know, again, not recognizing that it was imposter syndrome at the time. I didn't know how to get past it, if you will. And I know we talk about that during our time together tonight. But one thing that I think helped me was really recognizing the things that I did know and putting myself in situations that were maybe uncomfortable or saying yes to things that I didn't feel like I was comfortable doing. So when let's use Dan Brennan as an example again, when he said, Hey, do you want to do this research or do you want to write this manuscript? I thought to myself, Oh gosh, I'm not prepared. I'm probably going to fail you. But I put myself in that situation and built that self-confidence. And then the more things that I did that showed or made me feel like I could do something, I felt like that diminished that feeling of imposter syndrome a little bit more.
2: I think for for me, similar to Lindsay, my first position out of uh, residency, I actually was a pediatric transplant pharmacist, and the pediatric side wasn't thrilled about having an adult trained person covering their their kiddos, but you know, for the most part, it's okay. But I was also covering the transplant, which none of them really wanted to cover either, and so I think we kind of met some way. But I definitely felt that really hardcore early on in my career. Uh, because it's not like I was just only caring for transplant patients in my unit. And so it was a lot of looking things up, quadruple checking myself because I also felt like, you know, maybe some other PGY2 uh, trained in transplant will want to do PED someday. And I don't want to ruin that for anyone else in the future. So that was my first job for roughly about a year. And then, you know, as I was kind of settling into my groove as a PEDS pharmacist, uh, an adult job opened up. And I was like, well, At the end of the day, I I did want to do transplant only, and so it kind of led me to my current role. And then from there, I still had even more uh, imposter syndrome because Stanford being a very high volume center and a lot of research, they're, they're very interested in our input and things. I remember it was only maybe a month or two into me working here, and they were already implementing me into basically the medication collection of the heart transplant database. And the whole time I was thinking, oh, man, I really can't screw this up. Um, And so uh, I think at the end of the day, basically communicating, not that I can't do the job, but comfort level and expectations with the people you're working with. Because I think the other thing I realized through most of these experiences, you may think that everyone's super confident in what they're doing, but they're also going through the same thing as you. And so recognizing that all of us uh, have some level of this and, and not judging people for whenever they feel like an imposter, it helps uh, with the process as well.
1: Thank you guys so much for sharing your stories. And, you know, you can definitely see that imposter syndrome really exists in pretty much all walks of life and all walks of experience. And there's something that I kind of want to uh, go back to as what Lindsay was saying earlier that you didn't know when imposter syndrome was happening, or you weren't aware that, that was happening. And I'm just curious too, you and I obviously had been practicing for quite some time and you know when we were in school and when we were going through training, the way that psychology of the learners, the psychology of the trainees were not really necessarily a talked about topic or very much um, the whole idea of imposter syndrome, wasn't necessarily even a concept that's familiar to any of us. Do you think that may have impacted maybe you in um, and how you wish that maybe some of these things could have been brought up to you? And similarly, going to um, Megan and Eric, do you feel if throughout your learning process, throughout your training, um, have people approached you at all about imposter syndrome, what that's about, and if you feel that um, their conversation with you had helped you or even changed your perception in any way. So Lindsay, first, if you don't mind.
4: Yeah, Eileen, you bring up, you know, such a good point. And when I was trying to think of, man, when did this term of imposter syndrome, like, when, when did I become aware of it? I think it was when Somebody brought up to me um, the Lean In book by Sheryl Sandberg, and she talks a little bit about imposter syndrome. And that was like maybe five, six years ago when when I read that book. So it had been out for a while. But I do think, and even when you guys invited me to be on this panel for this podcast, I thought to myself, you know, I see it in my residence, imposter syndrome, and I don't name it to them you know, I feel like I do different things to help them get past it. But I think one of the things that we need to do is name it and recognize it. And so, you know, I would love to hear what Eric and Megan, you know, have to say. But when you bring up that question of, to Megan, you know, has anyone brought this to your attention as to what this is? I know that as a preceptor and somebody that probably would have helped me back in the day to get past this, just recognizing and naming what it was that you're feeling could help you to get past those feelings or or realize or learn how to deal with those feelings that you were having. Um, And it's something that I, as a co-RPD and preceptor, need to do a better job of naming and bringing to light for my own residents.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's completely fair, and you bring up a good point, which is that you cannot simultaneously feel an emotion and describe it. So, if you're putting a label on something and you're naming it, it gives you a minute to step back and kind of evaluate what you're feeling, why you're feeling it, and then how to move forward based on that. Um, in terms of if people have actually named it to me, I am am completely blessed to be training in the time that I'm training. I have had excellent preceptors. I have an excellent RPD last year. I have an excellent RPD this year. Not just saying that because I haven't graduated yet. I do actually genuinely love Stacey. So yeah, a lot of my preceptors when I was training and throughout my PGY2 have sat me down and been like, what are you feeling about this? Why do you feel like you're not qualified to handle this? And have made me process through not only the decisions that I was making but what I was feeling about them and if I got into overwhelming situations how to make them less overwhelming based on kind of what we had discussed and I'm interested to hear if if Eric you had a similar experience
2: based on your training yeah I I think for me I I don't think I had a name for it Um, and actually like preparing for this podcast I went and like went on YouTube and searched a bunch of whiz imposter syndrome and I got in the Ted talk rabbit hole. I'd highly recommend the Mike Cannon Brooks Ted talk. He has a beautiful Australian accent, very chill guy and very uh, successful. Um, also very funny. So for me, I think the, the trainee thing, it was always, I felt like I could never do enough for my topic discussions. I could never get enough ready. And, and then. I, again, not knowing what the term was or how to the name I, I just, I decided as a preceptor, I'm not going to make my learners feel that way. And so things I like to do um, even now, because we don't have a PGY-2 in transplant, but we have students and residents and everyone's terrified of the transplant rotation because they get maybe one lecture of transplant meds if they're lucky. I make sure that if I'm looking things up, I'm modeling it and showing it to the learner and showing them that I am not the all-knowing person, right? Or, like, I, I demonstrate, like, hey, if you, t- if you ask me what's an RCHOP, I'm not fully certain I can tell you what's an RCHOP. Uh, I like to humanize our preceptors um, just to make them more comfortable, and I think it makes the learners more, I don't know, engaged in the rotation and less scared to ask questions, and I think that while well, they still will have imposter syndrome, at least, It's a more comfortable imposter syndrome for them.
0: Eileen, I love that you asked this question because now this has me thinking back and none of my preceptors put a name on it, but they did see like the signs within me and sit me down and and talk to me about it. I actually learned the terminology through co-residents and that was a game changer. Because again, exactly as Megan said, once you could put put a face, put a name on it, wrap your head around it and start to think through it logically- then you can start to overcome it. But speaking of which, let's talk about overcoming imposter syndrome, right guys? Because that's what we do. We're pharmacists. We problem solve. I do want to take a moment to drive home that if you are experiencing imposter syndrome, it is something to overcome. You can always do the fake it till you make it type of thing. And for some folks that works, but for some, you can't just keep on pushing and pushing and pushing. Eventually you're going to hit a brick wall. So I want to talk about how we can overcome it and how we've helped learners overcome it.
3: I, I can start us off so nobody steals my answer. No, I'm just kidding. I, I think two things really helped me and the first was leaning on people like we kind of already talked about, like leaning on your co-residents who are going through the same thing that you are or your preceptors, or the people who are in charge of you, or even the medical residents that you get close to, because they're all experiencing the same thing. And then the second thing was failing, was being so bad at something and trying it and just it completely going wrong. And then taking a step back and being like, well, you know, the world is still spinning on its axis because I made a mistake. Like that's, it's fine. And you're going to make mistakes. And that's the entire point of learning. So I think the first kind of mistake that I made or the first time I encountered a situation where I had no clue how to go forward actually ended up teaching me a lot more. And it actually made me a lot calmer because now I knew that something could happen that I considered a disaster level scenario. And it really wasn't. It was just me making a mistake and then learning from it and not doing it again the next time. I think it also
1: comes into play sort of the You know, the transplant in itself, like the acuity of the patients, it put us in this heightened psychological and even, um, you know, just uh, professional state that we feel we have to be perfect. We have to do these, we have to make sure nothing gets messed up, because all these things are on our shoulders, it all depends on us to make sure everyone's tack level is perfect, everyone's sugar is amazing. And that we're also precepting at the same time really excelling. So beyond just The whole on being a pharmacist that kind of pushes us towards this feeling of perfection, but it's also just the environment sometimes really forces us to be in that type of mindset. So I really like Megan the way and even you, Eric, the way earlier you said to humanize ourselves and to, you know, admit to our failures and say you can't do it all. And it's okay sometimes to actually learn from your mistakes once or twice, because I think um, imposter syndrome often is a result of not only your own psyche, but it's also part of the environment that kind of drives it also. So thank you, Megan, for at least bring really bringing up to say like, you know, failure. that is actually a very important piece of life experience that we should actually embrace it and not be afraid of it.
2: For me, I think the way that I've kind of learned to overcome imposter syndrome, to go off of what you're saying, I Eileen, mean, failure is a part of life. I try and expose myself in other aspects of life that force me to fail. Like, uh, for example, when I ski, uh, my goal is to fall at least once um, per day because then I'm forcing myself to ski hard enough. Um, that being said, I, I Eileen mean, may may make me want to change my uh, thoughts on that. Or even when I travel, I, I've been blessed to my aunt works for an airline. So I'll fly standby places and I will just show up to the airport and not know where I'm going. And so that just puts me in a different, uh, like mindset. And so now even these minor conversations come a little bit easier. I think, uh, I don't think everyone's going to have an aunt that works for an airline. So I can't recommend that for everyone, but in clinical terms, what I, what I do is I often ask people, so do you want the fast answer or do you want the most correct answer? And then that kind of uh, allows me to, if I don't know the answer I want, oftentimes I'll be like, yeah, you know, I don't need the answer in this two minutes. I'd rather just get it the most correct. And, you know, I'm sure they've also felt that way too. And I I often give people that option as well when they reply. Um, And sometimes they do want the gut answer, but most of the time they're willing to take a little bit later And so it gives me a chance to pause and reflect on the thought. I'm glad I'm not an ED pharmacist who's, you know, spiking a bag of someone's coding. Uh, And maybe those answers wouldn't be as uh, welcomed. But that's kind of how I've kind of overcome it in the clinical setting.
4: Yeah, so one thing that um, I think about and try to help my residents with, and while I admitted to not naming imposter syndrome for my residents, I do feel like I do things to help them to overcome them. So one thing is really just celebrating their successes. When a resident says to me like, oh, I can't believe these people have really offered me this job. I can't believe, like, how silly are they that they are going to offer me this job? They must not know what they're getting. And, you know, part of it is joking. But I think part of it is really thinking like, do I deserve this position? Am I worthy of this position? And whether it's joking or not, I try to point out, like, are you kidding me? You're excellent. Who wouldn't want you? Here's all of the things that you have done that have made you an excellent choice for this position. I was listening recently, you know, Eric brought up podcasts, and I was listening to a podcast recently about the fact that what we dwell on. Um, seems to get bigger, right? So like that negative self-talk, those are the things that you'll continue to think about and that will continue to get bigger in your mind. And the podcast that I was listening to offered the advice of writing down the positive feedback that you receive. And then when you start to have these feelings of not being good enough or adequate for whatever you're getting ready to do, whether it's a paper project or presentation or new position, really looking at that document as a concrete thing that people have said about you to provide you with the positive feedback on all of the great things you have done. And I'll just end that with saying that when I left Barnes, a colleague of mine gathered from other colleagues, adjectives. What are some adjectives that you would use to describe Lindsay? And she put it in a picture frame and I still have it in my home office. And I often look at that because it makes me smile because these are the things that people, and they're all positive things. They didn't say anything negative because, you know, I was leaving. And so they wanted to be nice, but, you know, and those were things that I occasionally will walk by and read and really just makes me smile because I think when we talk about imposter syndrome and hear about it, we oftentimes think about it just in our professional life, but really it's in all aspects, you know, of our life. And so just seeing some of those things were nice things that people use to describe me, make me happy and kind of help me to get through some of those negative self-talks that we all have sometimes. It's funny
0: you mentioned that, Lindsay, because my RPD, Sarah Tischer, essentially had me do the same exact practice when I was prepping for interviews, going through what I had achieved to reset my equilibrium to what I really had achieved. Within that realm, though, I know that it's easy for us to compare ourselves to one another and say, oh, but look at their CV. They have five manuscripts or this or that. And I think that's one of the other challenging parts is we do tend to want to compare ourselves to others, even in the training environment to your co-residents. But what I would challenge folks to do, and I'd love to get y'all thoughts on this too, just know that we're all in different walks of life, right? Maybe you haven't had an opportunity to complete a research project, publish a manuscript, but what have you been up to? Have you been heavy in precepting? Do you teach a killer lecture on transplant immunosuppression and really reflect on your personal journey, what you've achieved, and you never know what the future is gonna lead you to.
2: So you're saying there's many other things you see accomplished. It's not just manuscripts and stuff. I don't know how to how why I think of it this way, but I think of like Mario games where you know Mario is just like the average player that has everything going for him, right? Like he's not great at anything, but he's good at a lot of things. And then there's like the Waluigi's who are very good at maybe publishing manuscripts, but maybe they're not as active in other stuff. And unless you're in that center, I don't think you necessarily know what everyone's you know different skills are. I don't think you should try and compare yourself unless you're you really, really know that person in their center. And at the end of the day, there's only so many bars that you can give yourself attributes to, right? to so do the research or or the the teaching if you want to be 100%, you know, researched, then you're probably lacking yourself in other things too, right? And so I don't think anyone can be all the way max bars without cheat codes.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, Eric, you really brought up a great point in the sense that, you know, we often forget that we are a part of a team. Uh, We a lot of the times like, you know, we're rounding on our own, we are the abdominal transplant pharmacists, we're doing kidney, we're doing liver, and we're probably the only pharmacist that's rounding with the team. And it feels very siloed at times. And, you know, you may forget that you're contributing kind of just a part of your expertise to the team, you're part of a greater team in management of a patient, that patient is at the center. And I think when we're often focused on what we do, we forget about the greater, uh, the bigger picture of this is what we're doing to take care of the patient. So uh, all we can contribute is what is the best for the patient and we don't have to do everything. And now that I'm in more of a pharma world, and I think, you know, pharma, obviously part of the bigger engine, uh, you know, and I had to basically start my career all over again. um, A lot of the times you definitely feel like, oh my God, like uh, everything that I have learned, it prepared me nothing for this job that I have right now. However, I think a lot of times you forget that you're part of just bigger engine. You're a small cog, but at the same time, your cog is very much necessary to make the machinery run. And that your expertise of all your experiences accumulated from prior will help you in excelling in what you're supposed to do. There was a reason why they hired you. Whether you're uh, hired you as a pharmacist, a transplant pharmacist or even matched you for PGY-1 or PGY-2, um, I think a lot of the times it's easy to forget that. And again, you have to also think about relying on the team. It's not all on you, and it's also part of the team. Lindsay, I'm curious. um, You've been through various different institutions already and have gone through also many students and residents and whatnot. Is there anything that you can do to help these uh, residents and students remember of the bigger picture and what they um, still have to go through to achieve what they want in life?
4: That's a good question and something that I don't know that I have the best um, answer for. But one of the things that I try to do is share my own experiences with some of the struggles that I've had and you know how I've gotten to where I am. And also just reminding them that like, I've been practicing for 15 years and you're not going to be an expert on day one. You're not going to be an expert in a lot of things on year 15 either. Um, And so I think that's one of the things, you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of humanizing the preceptor and not comparing. And those are the things that I try to take back to, to the residents and just trying to provide that real talk of it's going to take a while And you're always going to be, you know, learning and exploring throughout your career.
1: And the question to Megan, what do you wish that a preceptor may have done for you or could have done to help you to go through imposter syndromes, some tools that you wish that your preceptor would have let you know about that may uh, assist you through the process?
3: That is a really good question. Sorry, I'm still I'm basking in Lindsay's advice of it doesn't all just come at the end of PGY2, which is great. That is super encouraging to hear. I think things that I wish I would have had as a part of training are maybe just kind of the, the open conversations, especially on day one of, you know, this is my expectation of you. My expectation of you is not at the end of one month in the ICU, you're going to be an ICU pharmacist that's been practicing for 10 years. That's not going to happen. But my expectation is that you can titrate drip rates without me helping you. But just kind of having those open conversations about expectations for your learner and what they should look like at the end of the rotation. And let me just say for
0: Megan and any other individual going through training, you do not know everything at the end of PGY2. You will not even come close. You will try. You will try so hard and you will burn yourself out in the process. You will learn so much even in the first year after training because your brain is finally in the place where you can start absorbing uh, rather than seeping out the second you move on to the next month. So just a few kind, hopeful words to those that need to hear it, that it gets better and learning gets easier. And it will get to be a lot more exciting, especially once you're out of PGY2 and you start to see how the pieces all come together as part of the team.
1: And uh, one of my favorites actually is to just like, you know, reflect, right? Um, a lot of things happen throughout our career. And of course, Lindsay and I have quite a few years to kind of think back on. And a lot of the times, like just thinking back at the memories of the struggles and the tribulations and, you know, just the, um, all the different challenges that we have to go through; those are actually what we remember the most, and those are the ones that, after a while, maybe at the time, they probably eats you alive, and you're like, "Oh my God, I can't believe I did this." But you know, after some time, you look back, or you're like, "Huh." I'm actually glad I went through this because now I know this is how I treat new or this is how I do certain things. And, you know, so there are a lot of things you may not know it at the time. Um, it's okay to slow it down and give yourself some time to reflect on it, not to overdwell, but also just focusing on the objectives in terms of how did that make you feel? How did you get over that? And then to think about how can I deal with it the next time if I am to encounter it again? And also what are some of the big learning points for myself that I should remember down the road? And I really like what Lindsay said about writing things down. And I think um, as archaic as that sound, it's just that visual reminder. Um, If you don't like to write, type it out in like colorful fonts or something like that. And I think that way it's a good reminder for yourself to see you're worth it. You can do this and that it's okay for you to fail. And the main thing is how do you get better the next time? The last note is, um, I think if you guys can uh, give a personal message to the people out there who may be suffering imposter syndrome and maybe start off with Megan.
3: Um, I think my take home message would be comparison is the thief of joy. So, try to keep yourself and your accomplishments in the forefront of your mind and not think about people who are ahead of you in the career path that you want or your co residents or co workers who are on different paths.
4: I think my closing point would be just recognizing that imposter syndrome is very common. So, Lauren started us off with saying that 70% of people experience it. And I think, you know, when I have seen, Other people that I think of as very accomplished and renowned transplant pharmacists admit to having this and experiencing this, it's kind of comforting. Um, And I think recognizing that you're not alone and categorizing it and stating what it is and listening to some of those podcasts to maybe think of tools beyond what we've already talked about today.
1: And I'm gonna say, listen to this podcast.
2: Um, I think my closing point would be, it's not just pharmacists, it's everyone on the team that experiences this. In real life, whenever you're no longer a trainee, when people ask you a question, it's probably because they don't know the answer to it. So it's not a quiz, take your time. If you don't know the answer, being upfront with them, because you would hope that they would be honest if they didn't know something back with you. And then I think it's even more important for us because for most, for the most part, it's kind of unique for pharmacists on the transplant team. We're typically the only one of our specialty on rounds. Like there's usually more than one in P or PA. There's a couple of MDs um, and so they can bounce off each other, but sometimes we feel an even greater pressure because we're the only ones. But just know that you have other pharmacists on your team, even if they're not rounds to bounce people off. And if you're by yourself, there's always, people you can text from other institutions. Um, I, I do that from time to time as well. And so I think it's a great resource and we should be available for each other because everyone needs some help.
0: All right. I want to thank you all so much for your participation. We've learned a lot. I'm going to say personally, this was actually a little therapeutic for me too. We talked about, you know, making mistakes, but humanizing mistakes. We talked about putting yourself out there, but giving yourself the room to, to take time and make sure you're doing a good job, just as well as how to work with any learners, um, setting expectations. And I love that you talked about that and, and being open and honest with learners about any previous experiences you have. Maybe we need to start naming this, right? Like maybe we need a, a mini topic on, hey, imposter syndrome's a thing. Let's talk about it and let's air it out and let's overcome it. And then let's celebrate our successes. So that is going to conclude our really wonderful MTOR You Know podcast on imposter syndrome. Again, thank you so much to Megan, to Eric and Lindsay. Thank you to my co-host, Eileen. And we will see you next time.